This is New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, how a powerful international organization has been accused of rape. In many ways, I felt that it was a metaphor for the way in which the International Monetary Fund has treated much of the rest of the world. How the Sudanese themselves feel about the division of their country. They feel that this is a loss. Their sense of national pride is hurt. Who the real conservatives and radicals are in the battle to save the planet. The people who are radicals are those who would alter the composition of the atmosphere in fundamental ways. And Transsexualism and the Father, a new film about love. When we put love and family first, we don't have to understand. All that and more coming up on New America Now. The scandal surrounding the alleged rape by former International Monetary Fund head Dominique Strauss-Kahn against an African maid working at his New York hotel may have faded from the headlines, but the case and the controversy continue to simmer. At issue is not only whether a maid, a subordinate, was sexually assaulted by a very powerful man, but also who the guardian of truth is when power, race, and gender are at play. There is also the not-so-tiny irony of the IMF's role in all of this, and the parallels many observers have noticed between what the former IMF head might have done to a citizen of the developing world, and what the IMF itself is accused of doing to many citizens of the developing world. Joining us today is Kavita Ramdas, Executive Director of Ripples to Waves, a program on social entrepreneurship, gender, and development at Stanford University, and former CEO of the Global Fund for Women. Welcome to the show, Kavita. Thank you. It's great to be here, Shireen. So what were your immediate thoughts when you heard the allegations that the head of the International Monetary Fund had been involved in the rape of a hotel maid? Well, in many ways, I felt that it was a metaphor for the way in which the International Monetary Fund has treated much of the rest of the world, including the country where the um, hotel employee was actually from, Guinea. And in other ways, I also felt that it was just another example of how men with high levels of power and privilege in our societies can get away with pretty much anything, including sexual abuse. So I think both of those thoughts went through my head at the same time. Well, the circumstances of this particular case are almost tragic comic um, when you consider the, the view that many people have about the IMF, that it is essentially raping and taking advantage of the world's poor. And, and you mentioned this in a recent article that you wrote. Can you tell us why you and others hold that view? Um, For many, many years, the uh, International Monetary Fund, and to be fair, actually, for many years, um, simultaneously uh, with its sister organization, the World Bank, the policies of the International Monetary Fund, um, often referred to as austerity policies or measures to essentially advance um, the global capitalist enterprise, were measures that um, countries' governments, particularly poor countries' governments, were forced to take in order to be eligible for loans that were given to them for infrastructure, such as dams, uh, roads, 
um, building the infrastructure of their societies. And the major focus of these austerity policies were cutting key subsidies. And the subsidies, of course, that developing countries have as there are in all the developed world are subsidies for the most critical basic needs of people. The things that for people education, need, yeah. for health, for um, basic agriculture, for basic food, actually. In many parts of the world, um, those subsidies provide access to the most basic nutritional needs. And in that sense, because women carry the disproportionate burden of being able to feed their children and being able to provide for their families, the IMF's austerity policies um, had essentially made women so vulnerable um, to poverty, to being in a place where um, often women were pushed into uh, selling their bodies for subsistence sex in order to be able to feed their families. And in that sense, I think, while it might be a little bit of an exaggeration, it's actually not a very extreme exaggeration to say that the policies of the IMF and to a lesser degree the World Bank have for many, many years been violating women. And so there was a certain kind of um, a blatant uh, metaphor that then came into one's mind as you saw the head of the IMF actually treating an individual woman with the same lack of regard as the policies of his institution had been doing with women more broadly and in general. Uh, another thing from a, from an American point of view, just watching this in, in the American headlines, um, was this sort of drama of the media. And, and we sort of got to a point where all of us were wondering, who is the guardian of truth? Because this woman was sort of being indicted by the public and the media as a lie teller. And and we didn't really see much of that happening with Dominique Strauss-Kahn, maybe because he's powerful. What are your thoughts on that? Who is the guardian of truth when, when race and gender and power are at play? Well, it's interesting. Actually, you know, there were two stories, right? Because I would say for the first two weeks, actually... She was given credibility and I felt like the media was very squarely on her side. And and so, to be fair, I don't think that, you know, there was an immediate dismissal of her. In fact, quite to the contrary. And that was why I was saying earlier that there was this sort of funny alignment in working class solidarity, which I hadn't seen in a very long time. But it turned quite States. quickly, didn't it? And suddenly it she turned. was this liar. Yes. Well, it turned. And interestingly, it turned because of a set of things that I think had more to do with, I mean, when I watched the media coverage, it had almost more to do with her kind of vulnerability as an immigrant rather than as, you know, um, her vulnerability as a woman and sort of, you know, well, maybe she's lied before, et cetera, et cetera. But this whole notion that somehow she'd had this conversation which had been overheard in which she said, oh, yeah, you know, I know how to milk this for money kind of thing then kind of changed the whole tone. But what I find sort of saddening is not so much that the media shifted the tone, but I think if the New York Police Department had had a slightly different take on immediately saying like, oh, well, then maybe we don't really have a case. I mean, I think they had enough of a case to be able to stick by the case and not have to kind of reveal all their cards. What I think did happen, and that's where your issue of power and privilege definitely comes in, is, you know, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, so clearly had, you know, the top lawyers of the city and people, you know, money was of no concern. And there was this clear implication that they were just going to go after the New York City Police Department. And I think, you know, that initial sense that, you know, 
a New York City police department could go up against this really powerful international guy um, because they had the facts and the case straight um, got muddied a little bit. Although I think we're sort of back now to a different place. I mean, it does seem like well, now they have found out more about what her situation really is. Um, I think the questions around what a woman's um, own history has been, um, for a while there was a lot of discussion about the fact that she was covered, that she was wearing a headscarf, you know, that is Because not, she is of Muslim background. Right. Guinea, most uh, most Guineans are Muslim, as are most people in Sierra Leone and Senegal in the neighboring areas. So I think there was, you know, there was a lot of kind of imaginative discussion around that. But I, I think what has been remarkable and what I've seen um, is how she has kind of conducted herself with a great degree of dignity. And I think there was also a sense in which initially we didn't hear anything from her. But then, although there has been discussion around that, I think what has I found very encouraging um, is indeed the sense of composure and dignity that she has brought to the situation and the decision to go public and tell her own story and therefore not let her story be told either by the police who are quote-unquote defending her or by the person who violated her, but to really have her own voice. And I guess my experience at the Global Fund for Women reminds me most importantly in all of this is women's own voice and the ability for a woman to tell her own story. Well, let's talk about that, the the woman telling her own story. Do you believe that the burden of proof should be placed on the victim in, in the case of rape? Because it, it almost feels like it's her. It's she that has to prove that she was raped. Well, I think in every instance, and this is a very, very old um, set of dilemmas in um, in law across countries and across cultures, and you know this, Shireen, I think um, in Islam, you're supposed to have four male witnesses to a rape under Sharia so that you can you know, actually determine whether a woman was raped or not. I remember growing up in India in the 80s where, in fact, the women's movement um, fought very hard for and won a change in the rape law that actually removed the onus of proof from the woman having to prove that she was raped to the perpetrator having to prove that he had not actually committed that crime. Um, so I think it has gone through many iterations and continues to do so in many different parts of the world. Um, I think it isn't quite as straightforward on any level. I think as women also want to choose to own our own sexuality, there's a there's a fine line there between being able to say we can and do consent to the pleasures of sex and the potential for us to have the choice to engage in sexual behavior, which may not always be viewed as legitimate by our societies, while at the same time being very conscious and aware of the fact that um, rape is used as a force of um, powerful force of intimidation is used as violence against women, is used as a way to deny women their sense of dignity and their sense of self. Um, but I would say it's important for us not to simply make it about women themselves. The act of being raped, whether it is done to a man or to a woman, takes away one's dignity, takes away one's sense of self. And so um, for me, I think what's very important in this is that um, women are able to speak, women and men who are in positions where um, this kind of sexual violation is used as a way of intimidation or as a way to coerce you into something that you don't want to be 
um, in a position of agreeing to that you have the ability to resist that and that you have the ability to speak about it. But I think it is more complex than simply saying uh, it's all on this person or it's all on the other person. I think it's enough of a complex situation that I think we have to be able to look at both sides and be able to really hear both sides. Are we hearing both sides in this case? Do you think? No, I don't think we are. I think we we are not hearing both sides in part because, again, um, rape, as all other kinds of experiences of humiliation or uh, violence, uh, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a larger context. And the context that we're talking about right now is a very unequal context. It's a context in which one person has all the wealth and all the privilege and all the power of position and you know, opportunity, i.e. Dominique Strauss-Kahn, and you have another person um, in that scenario who has very little power and very little position and very little ability, which is what makes her poise all the more impressive because I have actually um, been very struck by the fact that, you know, firstly, most rape cases aren't even reported because most women, particularly women, because they feel powerless in society, are used to it being dismissed out of hand. So it's quite remarkable that she even had the courage to report it to begin with. And so I think, you know, whether we start from that place and whether we understand that, yes, the the terms are unequal, but on the other hand, um, the ability for anybody who's been the victim of that kind of violence and that kind of sexual violence to be able to claim their own dignity and to assert their own position to me, that gives me a great deal of hope. There's also the issue um, about the rights of domestic workers. Nafisatu Diallo, the maid involved in the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case, was, is a maid. Mm-hmm. You've been studying the issue of domestic workers here in California at Stanford. What are the rights that maids like Nafisatu Diallo need in order to be able to do their jobs effectively and safely? What are the kinds of issues that you are trying to work on to have in a Bill of Rights for for domestic workers? Well, we have to first distinguish, actually, um, Nafisa, um, in the context of the Sofitel uh, Hotel, she actually doesn't fall under the category of domestic worker. She is doing the equivalent of domestic work, but she is actually doing it with more protections than most domestic workers do. So the kinds of uh, manual labor of caring, what uh, sociologists Ali Hochschild and Barbara Ehrenreich would call um, the occupations of caring, whether it's uh, making beds or cleaning or looking after other people, um, those are have traditionally been women's professions. When they are in the quote-unquote formal labor sector, um, which in this case, um, Nafisa's uh, situation at the Sofitel Hotel, she was a member of the Hotel Employees Union, and she was actually protected because of that by certain labor laws. And they the continue new, to defend her as and well. And they have continued to defend her, and that's actually really quite remarkable. I think um, what we are talking about here in the most recent in- instance in uh, San Francisco and the new laws around domestic workers that are being proposed is... Um, protection for those who are even more vulnerable. So if we think she was vulnerable in the position against Dominique Strauss-Kahn, now take that and make that an employer who is doing this to a woman who works in his own house. So let's say this was not her cleaning a hotel room, but her cleaning the room of Dominique Strauss-Kahn in his own home. 
it is domestic workers of that kind that this law is trying to actually protect. And um, during my time at the Global Fund for Women, one of the very fascinating phenomena and very encouraging phenomena from my perspective was increased mobilization by domestic workers all over the world, in Latin America, in India, in many different parts of Asia, um, mobilizing for their rights because they they are so much the most vulnerable workers. They are not protected by the legal laws, um, even in countries that have good labor laws, because they're often invisible. They're not considered to be in the formal sector of the economy. Many of them work in slavery-like conditions, some of them in actual conditions of slavery where they're physically not able to move. Kavita Ramdas, thank you so much for joining us today to give us some insight into the world of power and gender and and domestic workers. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Kavita Ramdas is executive director of Ripples to Waves, a program on social entrepreneurship, gender and development at Stanford University. And she's former CEO of the Global Fund for Women. Listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. When Africa's biggest country was divided in two this year, not only was a land divided in half, but lives were changed forever. Most of us don't understand what happened, but for the Sudanese, the split was a massive change in their country and their lives. Joining us today to discuss the new South Sudan and the past and future of the old Sudan is Sudanese-American analyst Amir Ahmed Nasser. Amir, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Shireen. So tell us, why did the biggest country in Africa split? Why did Sudan split? Well, there are many you know, reasons, but uh, keep it simple. If you go back to the independence of Sudan, right, the boundaries that were drawn were not chosen by the Sudanese. It's not like they determined them. You know, they they were pretty much said by the British. And so Sudan as a nation state ended up encompassing about 600 ethnic groups. You could classify them simply again, you know, as Arab, Afro-Arab, and African. And the southern Sudanese, they're predominantly African, ethnically speaking, and they're also Christians or animists. Um, some of them are Muslim and Arabized. So you've got to tell. Sorry, I've, I've got to interrupt you because you've got to tell us what an animist is. I don't think most of us know what that is. Animism is, uh, you know, would be the, the traditional religion of, of numerous ethnic groups. You know, it's worshiping nature, spirits, ancestors, things like that. Okay, that, so that would that, be animism. So you have a situation in Sudan where there's 600, count them, 600 different tribes, and they have different religions and different ethnicities. And, and are you attributing this to the split? Th- that is part of it, and this is what I'm getting to. So roughly 600 groups. And what happened is that once the British left, the central government in Khartoum was taken over mainly by Afro-Arab and Arab tribes. And since then... You know, for decades, they held on to the to, to the rule and they marginalized the Southerners. They even marginalized, you know, the Darfurians as well and, and, and different groups. And so the Southerners have been upset for a very long time. And that's why they rebel, because they want to have rights. 
they're treated as second class citizens for you know for a long time. Um, they want to have rights. They want to have political power as well. They want to have you know economic development, and they've been getting hardly any of those things for decades because they haven't been part of the government. And so it has been a quite a nasty situation. And um, because it wasn't resolved, they fought, they fought. And, you know, the CPA was finally implemented. The comprehensive peace agreement that was signed between the North and South, you know, finally stopped the, you know, the, the civil war. And um, the Southerners finally attained their independence. What role did other people, non-Sudanese, play in this split? Uh, there's, a, there's a great deal of financial and geostrategic interest for Western and other foreign interests in Sudan. D- did they play a role in any of this? Absolutely, for sure. In fact, if it wasn't for their role, um, the split you know, would have very probably never happened. First, you, you have the humanitarian aspect of things. You know, there are many people in the West and in the United States, you know, who, many who are genuinely concerned about the humanitarian situation because the southern Sudanese have been suffering for such a long time and massacred and killed and oppressed. So that has been, you know, um, a dimension for sure. But then, of course, unfortunately, you know, this is reality. You have all the corporate interests, the political interests. And so when it comes to, you know, financial and economic interests, you got to keep in mind that Sudan has a lot of oil. It has huge swaths of extremely fertile land for agriculture Tons of water access um, from the Nile, wildlife, uranium, okay, that's another key thing. And it has the highest quality of gum Arabic in the world. And for those of you who don't know what gum Arabic is, basically without gum Arabic, you can make Pepsi or Coca-Cola, right? And so those, you know, those are all things that exist in southern Sudan, and there are many economic interests involved because, you know, now Western corporations can go in, and especially American companies can go in. Since South Sudan is now independent, they can invest poor billions of dollars and, you know, gain a lot of construction contracts. And in fact, there are reports of private corporations acquiring thousands of hectares of land. Um, you know, the question is... Already? Is- already they're doing that? The, the country split about a month and a half ago, didn't it? Yeah, but, but they've, they've already been busy because after the signing of the peace agreement, um, this you know southern Sudan has relatively been autonomous. It wasn't you know independent yet, but it was quite autonomous, and they were able to conduct you know um, things in their own way. Why couldn't these corporations and and financial interests do this? when it was a full Sudan, when Sudan wasn't divided? and Or why can't they do it in northern Sudan, for instance, or what is now called Sudan right now? When the NIF, the National Islamic Front, took over, um, you know, in a blood, bloodless coup, they were vehemently Islamist, anti-Western, and, you know, that caused a lot of problems for Sudan as a whole. And, you know, that's, that's why, you, you know, the, the bombing um, happened, of the pharmaceuticals factory in, in, in Khartoum during Clinton's time. Um, that's why sanctions were, were put into place. You know, basically, the Khartoum regime was very anti-Western, very Islamist, and, you know, especially in the 90s. That has sort of changed, but by then there were sanctions already in place. And these, you know, American-imposed sanctions mostly prevented American corporations themselves from going in. Why would so, the U.S. have sanctions against its own corporations? Was that intentional or that was something that happened uh, unintentionally? No, I mean, those, those sanctions were meant to pressure the Sudanese regime. It's, it's you know, just as simple as that. 
Politically, it would have been quite difficult for the United States to lift those sanctions because there were allegations that the, you know, the Khartoum regime was supporting terrorist groups. That used to be the case. Now that is, you know, no longer the case. That's really isn't it. You know, so they had that. And then also the Sudan advocacy groups would have been outraged if, if the sanctions got lifted because the sanctions were there, you know, supposedly to, to pressure the regime. And they did pressure the regime. But unfortunately, they also ended up, you know, making Sudanese people suffer while the regime managed to adapt. And, um, you know, the real country that benefited out of this was China because, you know, China still went and it invested billions of dollars in oil. The Sudanese government was very happy to welcome the Chinese. And um, right now, within South Sudan specifically, China would perhaps be a loser because previously there was no competition. You know, there wasn't much competition that China had to deal with. Um, it was, you know, dealing mainly with Indian companies, Malaysian companies. And now, you know, um, American companies will be will be arriving there, will be investing, and they will be competing for resources. Tell us how the Sudanese people feel about this split and about these, uh, these ramifications uh, against their land and their country from outside financial and business interests. Okay, so, so let's be specific. Um, before the split happened, you know, there was a, a really nasty war between the North and the South. The North is generally characterized as Afro-Arab or Arab and Muslim, and the South is characterized as, you know, um, African and, you know, Christian and animist. Okay, so there was this major conflict. Obviously, for the Southerners, they're very happy. And, you know, I am, I am a Northerner, by the way. You know, I was born in Khartoum. I'm a Nubian Arab. But I'm very happy for the Southerners because I acknowledge that the Southerners have suffered for a long time and they deserve their freedom and their dignity. And, you know, something that they haven't gotten for a long time and they had to fight for, unfortunately. It's not something they managed to get in a united Sudan. So the Southerners are happy. You know, they have their independence. I mean, the, the vote was like, what, 99 percent, if I remember correctly, for the, you know, the referendum to, to, to separate. So, I mean, that says a lot. So the Southerners are happy. Now, when you look at the Northerners, however, you know, the rest of Sudan, a lot of people, of course, you know, they feel that this is a loss their sense of national pride is hurt because a big chunk of the country has now gone its own separate way and separated and gained its independence. So there is that sense, you know, a loss of um, national pride. Um, there's a lot of anger and resentment towards the government in Khartoum for mismanaging the peace process and the peace deal so badly. And there are some groups, interestingly, right-wing groups um, they're not like, you know, major groups or anything, but these are racist groups that have a sort of a, a good riddance type of attitude. You know, their attitude is good riddance. We finally got rid of them. These Southerners can go to their country. We don't have to deal with them in our country here, you know, anymore. Um, so it's it's quite a, you know, it's, it's quite a diverse set of um, reactions going on. But generally speaking, in the North, there's a sense of resentment, a sense of, you know, loss of national pride. And of course, the Southerners, they're happy because they got the freedom and dignity they deserve. And now they control their own destiny. There's a lot of misconception about Africa in places that aren't Africa. What do you think the biggest misconception is about Sudan? Well, Sudan is an enigma in many ways. And the biggest misconception is that, you know, many people think of Sudan as an African country, and then there are others who think of it, you know, as largely an Arab country. 
Um, Sudan is is hard to define. It's ultimately a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious country. So it's hard to put Sudan in a category. And even with the independence of southern Sudan, a region that's predominantly ethnically African, Christian and animist, religiously speaking, even with the independence of South Sudan, when you look at the rest of Sudan, it's still multi-ethnic and it's still multi-religious and it's still multicultural. So... Sudan is that. You, you cannot classify it as an Arab country or an African country. You know, it's a diverse country. And um, that's something that a lot of people, even in, even in North Africa, even in the Arab world, even in Africa itself, right, people don't realize, let alone outside of Africa and the Arab world. Amir, thank you so much for your insight uh, into a country that many of us know very little about. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Amir Ahmed Nasser is a Sudanese-American analyst. You're listening to New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. human history repeats itself. The wars, the greed, the violence, the lust for power. It's always been there and ever will it remain. But what is different in our age is the unmistakable effects of human life on a living planet that has little choice in the matters of human progress, or lack thereof. A growing movement of environmental activists has taken it upon itself to not only raise awareness about the damaging effects of human enterprise on the very planet that we need in order to survive, but to politically charge ahead in making the necessary changes to save us all. Bill McKibben is one of the leaders of this movement. He is the founder of 350.org, an international grassroots effort to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And he joins us today to discuss the future of our planet. Bill, welcome to the show. What a pleasure to be with you, Shireen. So what's your purpose in life? Well, I seem to spend most of my time these days uh, working on trying to figure out how to slow down climate change. I wrote the first book about global warming 22 years ago, back when I was a young man. And in recent years, along with writing and speaking, I've helped organize the first big global grassroots climate movement, 350.org. And this summer, my purpose in life around the clock has been organizing for this massive civil disobedience that will begin on August 20th and stretch for two weeks till Labor Day weekend in Washington, D.C., which looks like it'll be the um, biggest civil disobedience demonstration maybe in the history of the U.S. environmental movement. What is that civil disobedience demonstration? It's it's called tarsandsaction.org, all one word, and it's designed to protest the plans for a pipeline that will run theoretically 
from the tar sands of northern Alberta down to the Gulf of Mexico. It's a problem, a big problem, because those tar sands in Canada turn out to be the second biggest pool of carbon in the planet after only the oil fields of Saudi Arabia. And as Jim Hansen of NASA, the country's foremost climatologist, said not long ago, if we burn them in appreciable quantities, it's, and I quote here, essentially game over for the climate. And that's why now closing in on 1,500 people have signed up to be arrested over those two weeks in front of the White House. Barack Obama will get to make the call on this pipeline sometime this year. Congress does not have a voice in it. He's got a free shot. Wait a second, Bill. Let's back up here. You mentioned something that most of us don't understand. You you use the word the phrase tar sands. Now, yes. what is that, and why does it have so much carbon? It's a big pool of oil. In this case, the oil is a little hard to get at because it's mixed up with sand. You know, you don't just stick a drill bit in the ground and up come that bubbling crude. You know, in this case, you have to do a lot of other stuff. You have to heat the stuff up and melt it to make it flow and things. But the basic point is just it's an immense amount of fossil fuel, the second biggest pool on the planet. And we have to leave it in the ground if we're at all serious about dealing with climate change. Why do we have to leave it in the ground? Because every time you burn fossil fuel, coal, gas, or in this case oil, you release carbon into the atmosphere and the molecular structure of that carbon traps heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. Hence, the warmest temperatures ever recorded on this planet globally last year. Hence, the fact that the atmosphere is already about 4% wetter than it was 40 years ago because warm air holds more water vapor than cold. Hence, the fact that the Arctic sea ice is disappearing. Hence, the fact that we're having one drought after another, uh, place after place after place at the moment, most painfully, in the American Southwest. This is the biggest problem humans have ever faced, and these tar sands will be one of the biggest contributors to it if we let them go online. But the president has the capacity to stop this himself without any interference from our Congress, and hence that's why there'll be at least 1,500 people sitting in jail at some point or another over the next couple of weeks to try to remind him that there's real support, deep support out there for doing the right thing. Okay, but I mean, 1,500 people does not sound like a huge percentage of the American or Canadian population. Well, it's not a huge percentage of the American or Canadian population. Uh, On the other hand, it's the biggest demonstration of civil disobedience, I think, and I I can't think of another example from the American environmental movement that's as big over the last 40 years. And of course, there are lots of people who, for various reasons, can't get arrested, but we expect that by the end of the two weeks, we'll have a petition with more than half a million names on it to pass along. Uh, Look, the enormous power of the fossil fuel industry has so far thwarted any real constructive engagement on climate change. Congress won't even take votes on these things. They're so scared of the oil companies. We're never going to have enough money to stand up to them, so we're going to need other currency. And that currency this summer is going to be our bodies, our creativity, our spirit. Let's look at the situation. Most Americans and Canadians don't even know about this tar sands project. Um, How do you plan on 
raising awareness and just basically informing the public that there's this massive pool of carbon that corporations are trying to mine and profit off of that's well, going to hurt the environment. We're doing our very best, just you know, the kind of thing we're doing right here, right now, which is only happening because people are willing to put their bodies on the line. You know, there actually is a kind of strong campaign around this in those places where the pipeline's going to go through uh, among landowners in Nebraska and Texas and places like that, among indigenous communities in the U.S. and Canada who have been the most staunch opponents of this tar sands exploitation for years. But now we're trying to figure out um, how to make it the national and international issue that it deserves to be, and that's happening very fast. We've been hearing that as we're protesting at the White House, there'll be demonstrations going on outside Canadian consulates and embassies around the world, uh, protesting this sort of joint U.S.-Canadian attempt to undermine the climate. Why is the urgency now? Because presumably the tar sands have been there for millions of years. and That's right. <laughs> the tar sands have been there for millions of years, but we're only now starting to burn them. And in, in, if, if they're sitting there, there's no urgency at all. That's what we need. It's now that we're starting to tap into them. I mean, I, I guess the way to think of it is there's always been this carbon bomb sitting up there in Canada, but now we're about to build a 1,500-mile fuse to it. That's a really poor idea. And the president has said he'll make a decision on this project before the end of the year. That's why there's real urgency. Is the danger the fact that the pipeline is going through human populated lands from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico? That's an important danger. Uh, there doubtless will be leaks along the way. The kind of small precursor pipeline to this thing has leaked a dozen times in the last year. And for you know reasons that God only knows, they're running the pipeline directly over the Ogallala Aquifer, the biggest source of fresh water in the lower 48. But even if you can get all that oil safely to Texas and refined, even if it does not spill in land or water along the way, uh, if you get it to the refinery, it's going to spill into the atmosphere, as it were. And that danger from the carbon is the greatest danger of all. What do you say to all those people out there, Americans, Canadians, who might consider you some sort of a, a radical, maybe even a hippie, who cares more about the planet than the details of everyday life, like things like foreclosures and poverty and hunger and disease and joblessness? What well, do you say the, to those people? In the first place, really, we look around the world and we see that the biggest source at the moment of poverty and hunger and things is precisely the destabilization of the planet on which we depend. Food prices are up about 80% around the world in the last year, and the cause is the incredibly weird weather that's wrecked harvests in Russia, in Queensland now, across the southwest, in place after place after place. I don't think that we're at all radicals. I think, in fact, uh, it's the other way around. The people who are radicals are those who would alter the composition of the atmosphere in fundamental ways. Uh, the people who are conservatives are those who are trying somehow to keep the planet resembling a little bit anyway, the planet onto which they were born. So I think you'll actually be interested when you look at the pictures that come back from this demonstration in Washington. Everyone's arriving in their Sunday best, as it were, uh, business-like in dress and demeanor. We've 
told people for precisely for that reason because we need people to understand who are radicals and who aren't in this scenario and that's interesting oil companies that are behaving like radicals that's interesting so you have you sort of have an idea of the impression that maybe some environmental activists have left on the public and you're trying to remove the those attitudes and just have the public focus on the issue well i suppose you could put it that way or you could just say that i mean i'm a you know methodist sunday school teacher it's second nature for me to take this kind of thing really seriously and behave in serious fashion. Do you think it's realistic to believe that President Obama will do something about this? Because you said he's the one that can make this decision. If you were a cynic, Shireen, you would say that the fix was in. Um, The pipeline company, because uh, the State Department has to make a kind of recommendation to the president has hired as its chief lobbyist Hillary Clinton's former deputy campaign director. There were WikiLeaks documents that came out last year, or came out last month, showing U.S. envoys to Canada working with the big energy companies to spin favorable media coverage. Uh, If you were a cynic, you would say the thing's been wired. But there are those of us who remember that Barack Obama, that skinny young senator from Illinois, on the night of his nomination, faced the cameras and said, with my presidency, the rise of the oceans will begin to slow and the planet will begin to heal. Now, we're going to find out if that Barack Obama is still around or not. A lot of us are going to be wearing our old Obama campaign buttons, I think, while we're being arrested show that we're not exactly protesting him. We're demonstrating the support that's out there for that president that we thought we were electing uh, in 2008. If this doesn't work and Obama doesn't make the decision that you feel is, is highly important for our planet, what can, what can your organization and your affiliates do as a next step? Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, There may not be much that we can do. This seems like it's going to be a very important uh, kind of decision. I'm sure people will keep trying along the pipeline route and in lots of other ways and looking at legal avenues and things, but really this is the big call. Is the president going to say yes or not? Well, good luck with the, uh, the protest at the end of August, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Bill McKibben is the founder of an international grassroots movement to reduce the amount of CO2. His organization is called 350.org. This is New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. In the hills outside of La Honda, California, there's an alternative juvenile probation program run by the city of San Francisco. It's called Log Cabin Ranch, and the mission is to keep young men out of the more punitive detention programs by incarcerating them in a rural setting and providing them with a six to nine month program of counseling, education, and vocational training. For a series we're calling Listen In at the Log Cabin Ranch, We gave some of the young men microphones and asked them to take us into their lives. 
Today we introduce D. Man, you can just call me D. If you want. If you don't want to call me that, don't call me none at all. I'm 16. From from downtown, originally, but now I'll be I'll be with a few people. Well, right now we're at Log Cabin Ranch. Uh, it's a program for misguided youth, I guess. Coming to jail a few too many times, doing a pretty big crime, I guess. Basically, the only things you could come over here for is like assaults, uh, weapon charges, or like if you have a bunch of minor charges, like. Like a, like a like a bunch, but like like it's my first placement. That's just because my my charges was always serious. I heard about it from some of my big homies that came down here a few years back. Man, they, they I guess they went to the bad one before it was better. So they they just telling me like not to come here. Like it's not it's not the cold. It ain't sweet. Like it's it's ugly down here. But it ain't even all that bad. It's, it's supposedly it's the step before YA, the California Youth Authority, like basically prison for kids. It's ugly down there, but I guess it was supposed to be like close to that appeal. Like oh, you had to worry about getting shanked and, and stuff like that. That's what my big homies was telling me. But that was years back, like years and years ago. Like that was like the real old ranch. But I guess they they got some, on some new program and made it better. Personally, how I see it is just a way for the city to send us away for eight months and just forget about us. Not we'll have to worry about the 22, 23 people that they got up here for a smooth eight months just keep us out of their hair. I don't like it here, but I don't, well, I guess it could be worse. That's <laughs> how I look at things. I mean, we in the middle of the woods on top of a mountain. You surrounded by trees and wild animals and it's like we living in a house in the woods. I was born and raised in the city. I couldn't live out here. At Juvenile Hall, you just lock down. You only get, you like, we get like three hours of rec plus gym plus school. But other than that, we in our room all day for like, um, I want to say a good 12 hours, 10. But then uh, out here, you just, you never in the room. You get to go outside. You always with somebody. Like, but, but at the same time, it's, you don't get no privacy. So it's like you ain't got no really time to think or something. Someone's always trying to talk to you or something. And then you get to, you got more freedom, pretty much. You can just do what you do. Like you can like like in the halls, you can't have a pencil in your room. Like you can only you gotta ask staff. But here you can have as many pencils as you want. And you wear your own your own shoes, your own clothes and stuff. It's better than the halls, personally. I think because you get some sun, you get your own soaps and shampoo and stuff. So you don't gotta be using all the, the the crappy soap and stuff that they give you in the hall, and uh, you get like your own lotion, your own socks and stuff, and it's just it's better than the hall. Like don't come here, don't you feel me. Don't go to jail and come here. Just cause we in jail, we not stupid. Even though people don't see the reasons we do, we do what we do. I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that everyone got reasons to do what they're doing. Whether it be a good reason or a bad reason, everyone got reasons to do what they do. Listen In at the Log Cabin Ranch was produced for New America Now by Lisa Morehouse with support from Will Roy and The Beat Within. The program was funded by the Zellerbach Family Foundation and the City of San Francisco Probation Department.
You're listening to New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. In his ambitious first feature film, director Rashad Ernesto Green tackles a range of subjects, each of which alone could be considered somewhat controversial. Crime and punishment, the struggle of immigration, homophobia, and transsexualism. Gun Hill Road is a fast-paced drama about one family in New York and how things fall apart when the head of the household disappears in the prison system even if it's just for a few years. He joins us today to discuss his new film, which he wrote and directed. Rashad, welcome to New America Now. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us what your film is about. Uh, Gun Hill Road is about a family in the Bronx whose father returns home from prison after three years and discovers that his teenage child is transgender. And it's how that family chooses to deal with it. Um, It is... Uh, in your face. It's powerful. It's heartfelt. Uh, it was inspired by uh, someone in my own family who went through a similar, uh, similar circumstances as the family in this story, where I watched his family deteriorate over the course of a few years because of his inability to understand his child's transition, but at the same time truly loves his child. And um, I saw a child who really needed her father. And I wanted to make a film that didn't necessarily give them all the answers, but at least pointed them in the way of love and acceptance to hopefully one day bring bring them back together. So some of this film was based on personal experience of someone in your family. Is there is there any other part of the film that that is that you have personal knowledge of or that you have personal experience of? Well, basically, you know, I saw I saw my family member struggling. You know, being his family being torn apart because uh, he didn't necessarily have the tools to cope um, with his child's uh, alternative lifestyle. Um, And I I wanted to reach out to him. I wanted to hug him. I wanted to embrace this family and not necessarily teach them, but just say, hey, you know, when we put love and family first, we don't have to understand. You know, there, there is another way. Uh, you know, but to put love first, um, because uh, you won't, you won't have to struggle as much. Basically, it's, you know, I just, I, I just felt for him, you know, and I felt, I felt for his child, I felt for his family. It feels like the central issue of this film for you is the problem that the father has with his son's transsexualism or transgenderism. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is that so? compelling? Why is that so appealing to you? Why was it so important for you to address that specific issue? Because it is quite controversial for many people, isn't it? Well, yeah, I guess so. You know, um, to me, you know, it's, it, it, it's about a family, though. You know, it, it, it's not necessarily an issue film, although it has these issues in it. Um, it's about a family that's struggling with the difference. Um, there's family members with difference, and, um, and, they, and they don't understand one another. So for me, you know, seeing them break down, not being able to come to terms or not being able to communicate and and talk to each other, um, I wanted to, you know, show them that 
when you when you put love first, when you know, because there's so much love in the family, and to see them see them be destroyed over something that the child obviously has no control over, you know, I I wanted to show them a different way, and I and I thought the best way to do that would be through you know, uh, showing them the importance of family and showing them how much love they actually do have for one another and that their their paradigms of love might have been, you know, messed up along the way, uh, be it environmental or traditional or cultural or what have you, that, um, you know, we, we all learn how to love. And it's not necessarily right or wrong the way we feel um, about one another's differences, but to learn how to cope and to deal with that when you put love first you're able to deal with it uh, much you know uh, much better so yes this this topic might be controversial um but it's um ultimately about a family uh that's dealing with accepting each other's differences you've got some amazing char- uh, character actors in your film that that perhaps maybe your average NYU thesis film doesn't have. Can you tell us a little bit about the actors that you that you uh, were able to get to play the the roles in this film? Absolutely, the film stars uh, Isai Morales. Um, uh, made his fame with uh, Bad Boys with Sean Penn and uh, La Bamba in the '80s. Uh, he also did. Uh, he was also one of the stars on NYPD Blue, as well as uh, most recently Caprica on the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, Judy Reyes, um, most famous for Scrubs, her, her role of Carla, the nurse uh, on Scrubs for nine years. Um, and then we have a, a wonderful uh, pool of, of New York talent. Um, I found uh, Harmony, who had never acted in a film before. Harmony Santana was, uh, was someone I found on the streets of New York, um, and she turned in a performance that will absolutely rip your heart out. Um, and um, we also have Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Uh, from The Wire and Vincent LaResca um, and uh, Miriam Colon, Frankie G, Felix Solis, uh, Flaco Navaja. We have some really, really great uh, um, talent um, for you to for you to check out. It's a, it's a real heavy acting um, workout there. Um, I think uh, anybody who who goes to the to films and, and enjoys performances is going to really, really like this piece. Rashad, let's listen to a clip from your film, a scene where the father, played marvelously by Isai Morales, is having a one-on-one with his child, played by this new actor that you discovered on the streets of New York, Harmony Santana. I know I made a lot of mistakes. I still don't know what I'm doing, you know? I never meant to hurt you. My son. My baby boy. You ain't a baby no more. decisions. Just want you back home, son. So it's it's not always clear what you're trying to portray with the with the father's character because overall he's not exactly a monster, is he? I mean, he's begging for forgiveness here of his child. No, I mean I I, I mean I think it's pretty clear that he's not a monster at all. I mean, he does violently oppose his child's changing before his very eyes 
But no, he's not a monster in the slightest. Um, I think, you know, the entire point of the film is to show that this man loves his child and he's doing what he thinks is right the entire time. He thinks that he's loving his child the best way he knows how. He's trying to right his child in a way, but he is um, unaware that he doesn't need to right his child, that he needs to let go and let his child be. Now, you know, this, this of course, for different audiences, they're going to respond differently to it. Some people are going to be nodding their head in agreement with what he's doing, and a lot of people, of course, are going to be shaking their head, you know, saying, no, why is he doing this to his child? But from his perspective, he's doing the right thing. And I think that that's pretty clear, that he's doing the right thing because everything that he does is out of love. He struggles. He struggles and he breaks. And obviously, at this point, the, the scene that you just watched, um, or, or we just listened to, rather, this is after he realized how much pain he has caused his child. Now, perhaps he didn't realize that before, but at this point, he does. What are you trying to say as well about the just incarceration and the prison system and what prison does, especially when the head of a household is away from his home and his family for several years? Well, of course, you know, uh, w- um, you know, with prison, you're, you are away and you don't exactly have a lot of control. You know, so, so when he comes back, he's trying to reestablish his role as the father and, and, and the head of the household, where, where the household was getting along, you know, just fine when he was not there. So he's coming into a situation where he feels like an outsider in his own home, and he doesn't like that feeling, so he definitely uh, has to overcompensate in parts. And I want to talk about the ending as well, because for me at least, it It was kind of maybe confusing. Maybe I wasn't sure what you were trying to say, what lessons were learned or not learned. Was it your intention to sort of have it a little bit ambiguous like that? I don't think it's necessarily that ambiguous. Um, Enrique uh, has has learned many a lesson um, over the course of this journey, and and you know, without without giving it away, his last act is you know one of reconciling with his child. You Enrique know, being might. the name of the father's character. Yeah, Enrique is the father, and, and you know his last his last action is definitely one of reconciliation uh, with his child, and is you know they they have a moment there where you know we're left with, and, and I, yeah, I don't want to give it away, but you know I th- I think that we are left with hope. Fantastic. Rashad, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your new film, your NYU thesis film that is, is, uh, seems to be on its way to quite some success. It's already got a limited release and perhaps wider release in, in the near future. Thank you again for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much. Rashad Ernesto Green's first feature film is Gun Hill Road. The film will be showed in limited release starting August 19th at the Sundance Kabuki in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international, and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. 
I'm Shireen Sadegi. 